I think that's one of the more underappreciated uh, concepts in, in professional sports. The fact that if I pay you, Alex, for something, I'm virtually with absolute uh, certainty, I'm going to take advantage of that because I'm, I'm providing money to you for a service. I'm going to make sure and get that service, right? On the other side, when clubs, for example, provide services for players like strength and conditioning, it comes down to your ability to, I guess, sell your product or figure out how what you have helps that person get what they want. And that's different. That's an optional service. Um, and I think uh, I think compliance or how people follow you is going to be the biggest uh, one of the biggest factors there. back to the Mops and Mode podcast. I'm Alex. I'm Drew. And on today's episode, we've got friend of the pod, Brendan Hutman. So Brendan's currently serving as the H2F director within the 18th Airborne Corps at the 20th Engineer Brigade. He spent probably the last 20 years in baseball. In his ninth and final season, he was with the Pittsburgh Pirates, where he served as the director of performance science. After spending three years as the club's sports science coordinator, he began with the Pirates as the Major League Strength and Conditioning Coach for four seasons, spent four years in the same capacity with the L.A. Dodgers, worked five seasons in the Cleveland Indians organization as the club's Minor League Strength and Conditioning Coordinator. And he also worked as the Minor League Strength Coach in the Colorado Rockies organization and with the Royals all the way back in 2001. He graduated from the University of Kansas, where he worked with the Jayhawks baseball team and has his degree in exercise science and kinesiology. So needless to say, Brendan has spent a lot of time in the professional sports world and has now transitioned into the tactical space. And that's what we'll be chatting with him about is how does what he learned and experienced in pro sport apply or not apply to the tactical world. Enjoy. I don't know if this is a difference between tactical and pro sport, but I would say that a lot of times the tools become the program. Good hearts law. That, that's exactly right. We're chasing, we're chasing, you know, the metric as opposed to, Hey, here's our process. And this is where we're moving along a path. This is what we do. And here's what we're getting in terms of metrics that's telling us or informing us about the process as opposed to listen, we're going to chase, uh, bridge numbers. You know, we, we really want to get to service members and have them use bridge or we're going to really chase the vertical jump, you know, um, as opposed to, Hey, here's, here's our training process for an athlete or a service member. And then we're going to have you do this to test whether that seems to be working or not. Yeah, that makes sense. We've kicked off without properly introducing you though. Can you give us your name and background? Yeah, it's all good. First just you know, thanks fellas for, for having me on. We've had a ton of Good conversations, unrecorded. Uh, so I'm looking forward to uh, to being on here with you guys. Uh, first name, you know, Brendan Hutman. I um, been working the H2F project for about a year and a half. Uh, Drew and I came on about the same time. Probably didn't meet Alex too far uh, after that time at our small brigade annex facility. He tends to show up. Yeah, great timing. That's, true. That's what true. I'll say. <laughs> timing is everything. Yeah. Uh, but but really. Um, just briefly worked in professional baseball for, for 20 years uh, before coming here. Um, started as a, a minor league strength and conditioning coach, progressed to a minor league strength and conditioning coordinator, which oversees the 
physical development of players and entire organization with the Cleveland Indians, uh, was hired as the head strength conditioning coach for the Los Angeles Dodgers in 2008. Uh, in um, 2012, the Pirates were rebuilding. They hired uh, several of us from the Dodgers to the Pirates uh, to help rebuild in that process. Um, was the head strength coach at that time, was later promoted to two other positions, uh, sports science coordinator, and my most recent role was director of performance science. All for the same for the Pirates? That's right. For nine years of the Pirates, three different roles. Nice. How did you, did you want, did you do strength conditioning first? Did you know you want to do that route or did you want to go baseball and did you find your way in through strength conditioning? Does that make sense? Yes, yeah, a good question. So really I would rewind to watching my son jump on the trampoline when I was uh, eight or nine. Um, you know, my childhood dream was to make it to the major leagues as a baseball player. Um, I got uh, as far as college and I was playing college baseball and I was having to learn how to train differently uh, to compete at the same level as some others. Uh, figured out I wasn't going to make it as a player. I had a lot of interest in strength and conditioning. I pursued that path. That path then became about still achieving a childhood dream, getting the big leagues, um, but did that in a different way than was intended when I was eight or nine years old. Um, so really my path has to do with that. And I love being around baseball. Nice. Do you, sorry, Alex, I'm just going to keep going here until you jump in. Cause I have quite my, I have curiosities about baseball having grown up, not playing at the collegiate level by any means, but is there a noticeable, I know we're looking to talk about tactical versus versus sport, but specific to baseball and minor league versus major, did you notice a massive difference from a strength and conditioning standpoint and that level of athlete? Yeah, I would say, I would say certainly. So I think each role is awesome for different reasons. Each role has a different, um, uh, maybe focus, uh, at the major leagues. I think it has to do more with, uh, maintenance and slow improvement of performance. Uh, but mostly about, um, reduction of injury and prep for the day, right? So it's this priming piece and then, being good at manipulating set rep schemes to maintain or improve strength over time, as opposed to working in the Dominican Republic, for example, with 16, 17, 18 year old uh, athletes, that position has more to do with uh, probably teaching as much as it does coaching. Uh, and so somewhere along those two examples is how, you know, is how it changes along that path. Yeah. Cause I think about, on the tactical side, like the one population I work with is guys, granted it's more of the special operations side of things, but they want to get selected kind of to that next level, which I think would be similar to the to guys growing up wanting to go majors, minors, whatever, versus guys that are already either guys that have already been selected or for just regular army folks that are already in the army. And I think we deal with this all the time, the level of motivation for somebody who wants the thing versus somebody who has the thing. And so I would imagine that there's a lot of similarities there, you know, regardless of, of the sport or the pursuit. Sure. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. I'll ask a question to, to kind of dial it in on the, the sport versus tactical thing a little bit. I'm wondering, since we talk a lot about how different tactical is, w let's start with what's the same. Like, what were the things that translated best from your experience in sport? that set you up for success working in tactical? 
so I, I would I would say it's two things. In each of those examples, it's about the end user, which is either the athlete or the service member. Like that's the focal point. So it really comes down to uh, keeping that at the center of decision making, especially with support positions, right? The other similarity is building relationships with people, right? Like that plays either in my mind, either you can do that um, or you're challenged with that, right? And I think if you can build relationships with people and you can put yourself in those shoes, in their shoes, and really think about what you're asking someone to do or what you're trying to communicate and how someone else may want to receive that information. So I think building relationships is is a is a is a key one. I think that's a theme we've been seeing basically everywhere is that all of the all of the biggest successes people find in tactical is because they build really good relationships with the the leaders of the organization or even just like the subordinate members of the organization find it's a like a happy place to be, right? And suddenly they care more about it and that's all about relationships. And then the biggest problems people tend to run into are because they didn't take the time to establish relationships and they went for things. Like you don't you don't get things until you have relationships. So. Yeah, yeah. And I think that just a l- one more thing to say about that, the first part is about keeping the, the athlete or service member at, at the center of, of what we're doing. I think I, and I can, I don't know if y'all have experienced this, but I know early in my career, I'm 21, 22. I'm really like, my focus is on the program, right? Like, oh, I'm going to run this program. And it's all about the X's and O's of this program. And that's in my mind, that's what not to do, right? Like, I think that was my idea. That wasn't the end user service member or, or the, uh, the player's idea, right? I, my job is to be making decisions towards helping them reach, reach their goals. Do you find, because you mentioned leadership, and I think for me at least, having always been in the tactical space and having always had this sort of, like tactical strength and conditioning is new. So every environment you step into, you're always going to, at least right now, you're always going to be dealing with leadership that didn't have that thing when they were you know, younger. So there's that element to it. But with professional sport, the idea of human performance has been around for for much longer. So can you, I guess, speak to that element of it? Was it, was it that much different in the, in the major leagues with the sense being that like, you got your GM, you got your, like your staff level understands why you're there and they get it. So, so my sense would be that you don't have to deal with that aspect of it as much, but I could be wildly off if that makes any sense. You, uh, what, what part specifically? Just this idea of, I guess we could, we could cage it by saying this idea of selling a program. Right. So if mm. you're walking into, I guess I've experienced a little bit with rugby overseas. Like, I don't necessarily have to sell the idea of a strength coach to a professional athlete because they get it. But for a, for a soldier or for a senior leader, there's this whole stigma of, oh, well, it's always been done this way. Like, what's wrong with yeah. that sort of thing? You see what I'm getting at? Yeah. I think it's so. I, I think, you know, I think it's about promoting open mindedness. You know, I, um, we, I think, you know, you never have like the, the right answer. You don't have the right answer all the time. And I think just being honest about that, right. And, and being upfront about what we're trying to get done. And, um, and again, like not always right. Sometimes I make mistakes, but I think right now where I'm at professionally is as long as, as long as my intentions are coming from a good place and I make mistakes, like, Hey, I'll wear it. It's no problem. But at least I was doing it for the right reasons. Um, 
and so that's kind of how I think about it. And I also would say like in, uh, I don't really have a good sense for this yes, yet in tactical space, but in professional sport, you know, it, it's a very competitive space, right? There's 30 major league strength coaches in the world uh, at the major league level. I've had two of those jobs and that is really difficult to maintain that position, high performance. And, and I kind of joked that like, you know, there's kind of three factors of being able to tolerate doing that job. Number one is you have to just be able to tolerate the travel. So at the major league level, you're going to travel about 50,000 miles in eight months. So you're traveling all the time. First of all, like just tolerating that is unbelievable. The second is if you are matching your words and your actions and you care about being fit as an example, it's also hard to be fit and travel that much. And then the third component is, can you be best in the world at your job, right? So you've got, can you tolerate the travel? Just Yes or no. Number two is, do you care about being fit and being a good example for others around you? And then number three, can you be best in the world while managing the first two? And it's very difficult to do. And, uh, you know, I, I walked up that hill a long time and um, it's tough to do, man. Did you have experiences where you, like you were doing everything right from a sort of performance silo, but by virtue of just the way, you know, it's a sport, wins, losses, et cetera, where you sort of got hosed despite crushing it in your field? So I think that the position, that just performance space in general is very difficult to evaluate performance, right? You, you talk about Mops and Mo's, but like, it's really difficult. And Drew, you and I have specifically had this conversation, like, how do you measure a strength coach and their performance? And it's something I think about a lot because I don't have a great answer. I think the answer I've come up with is establishing benchmarks with whoever's evaluating you. And those are, they're probably measures of effectiveness more than performance because in baseball, I think you're contributing to reducing injuries, but you can't say that we're impacting that with certainty. Like there are so many factors into whether someone gets hurt or not. One of those is health and lifestyle. And we're doing everything that, that we can to contribute to making that excellent, right? But at the end of the day, the amount of time you have with that athlete is about an hour, maybe 35 minutes. That's not 24. And so, you know, it's, it's difficult. Um, the evaluation piece is very difficult to define. Yeah. I do think there's this problem of, like overstating how much impact human performance can have. And I've had this conversation with a few people in the last week. It's been on a lot of our minds, but the idea that like the stated purpose of some of these projects is to change culture and you can't really like commands can't really outsource changing culture, right? They can't say like you over there, change the culture of this organization. It's, it's kind of up to the command to change the culture we can provide tools, we can provide education and opportunities, but we, we see this all the time, right? Like you introduce human performance to a, a firehouse. Firefighters have a lot of like just structural things that get in the way of being healthy and fit. Mm -hmm. Just adding a strength coach won't necessarily fix those things. Just adding a dietitian won't necessarily fix those things. The organization has to have some sort of evolution in their culture where they start to utilize those things and care about those things. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, no doubt. And I think, um, you know, like H2F has FM 7-22 uh, organizations in baseball. I haven't seen that doctrine 
you know, so it's even more important if you're a, if you're a coach or a performance, you know, working the performance space in pro sport, it's, it's more important than ever to have those conversations with whoever, again, whoever, whoever's hiring you, whoever's, uh, you know, directing you, whatever it is, but just getting on the same page that, Hey, here's what we're working on, you know, and, and having some consistent follow-up on, on those objectives um, through time, because as you're traveling around the world and people are all over the place, there's minor league teams and people are traveling out. Like it gets easy to not have those, those conversations. And that's where it sort of like feels like it drifts Alex to your point and becomes something that it might not be. Do you, so shifting, like focusing on the athlete, do you, or did you find that because arguably there's more at stake in professional sport in the sense that like, if I'm, you know, a 21 year old pitcher, like there's, there's, first of all, there's money. Second of all, there's the, like the, the fame that comes with that, the media, et cetera, sponsors. Do you find that because there's arguably more at stake, you get a different attitude, mindset, whatever you want to call it from the population you're working with versus in the tactical space, there's less of that tangibly speaking. I mean, for some populations in the tactical space, there is a lot at stake. There's deployment, deployments, direct combat, what have you. But for by and large, I think it's a lot more intangible. So did you, have you noticed a difference in the type of, of athlete from that perspective? Yeah, I do. I, I've, I've felt that for sure, Drew. I think uh, a couple of reasons why I think first is baseball is condensed into eight months. So you have eight months to try to do this big thing called win the world series. Uh, the other you have to consider is the average salary continues to go up in, in the major leagues. And, and if you're a premier player, you're making a, probably a million dollars a start um, for a starting pitcher. If you think about that, if uh, at the time when I was um, the head strength coach, basically the minimum number of days was 15 and you went on the disabled list. So if you're a premier pitcher, that's, you know, that's three starts, that's $3 million that the team loses by just this person not performing, let alone the performance gain that happens. So that's the first part. Also in baseball, it's just, it's just so condensed down and the systems are much easier uh, to maneuver and decisions are made very quickly because the resources are very close. And I think contrasted to kind of what I'm feeling in the army is it's, even though there's big stakes, right? We're talking about human beings and injuries. Um, those are big stakes. I would also say that the, the big machine, the engine of the army doesn't slow down, right? To have the fidelity to move much left, left or right. I mean, it takes a long time to redirect this machine. And that's what we're all trying to do, right? With H2F is like, hey, we're doing the best we can to push this thing uphill and make some change. But like, I'm only one person, right? Um, and there's a whole bunch of us. So I would say that's the other contrasting part with the army is just a big machine it moves quick um it works in scale uh, as opposed to 25 25 people we used to talk when i was this is like very very true when i was at the company level maybe a tiny bit less true at the brigade staff level but we talked about the term task saturation a lot oh yeah and that there were just there were just so many things going on that there was never time to like take a step back and evaluate how the last thing went and what we need to change we talked about AARs a lot. Like you, you'd finish a field exercise and do an AAR about all the things you wanted to like retrain on or get better. And then you'd probably throw that AAR away because the next collective training event is in <laughs> two weeks and there's no time to do anything about any of the problems you identified. And I think 
one of the one of the core challenges here is that the army loves to try and solve problems by adding things. So we're going to add in H2F and it's going to fix all these problems. But part of the conversation has to be like, are there already too many things? And like, what do we take away if we're going to add something new and where do the sacrifices get made? Because now you got commanders saying everything's a priority, all 50 things. They, they can't be, right? So well, I, w- I wonder if with sport and Brendan, you'll know this better than me, but the goal is so clearly defined. I mean, you said it, like win the World Series, right? So everything else is sort of second tier to that. So it's it's absolute performance. So every decision you're making is performance oriented. And sometimes that means cutting a dude. Sometimes that means, you know, this, this, this. With the army, there doesn't really, well, really with the military, there doesn't seem to be as clear cut of a of a goal and so like alex you just mentioned you end up just layering priorities on top of each other to create this like convoluted system and then like you said you you try to press the easy button over and over and over and over and over again and right now in this current climate the easy button quote unquote is to just put embedded professionals into your performance sphere and hope that that solves every problem in the book whether it's marksmanship because hey there's a cognitive component to that or retention because hey people seem to sign back up when there's barbells sitting around but i don't think that for lack of having that singular objective of like did we win the world championship or not you kind of end up spinning your wheels i would think yeah i think um i think also the i mean you're exactly right right it's about winning tonight at the at the major league level and it's about accumulating as many wins as you can i mean if you look at the end of the season, how many one-run games that teams lose, if you just win half of those, the, the season might be completely different because that's usually, I don't know, maybe eight to 10 games, maybe more than that. Um, and I think also because performance is most important that night from a strength and conditioning perspective, you have your eye on volume management more than say the tactical space, which is more about getting as many reps as possible right? Completely opposite. It doesn't really know volume management. It's this idea, hey, hurry up and, you know, hurry up and wait, everybody get ready, but, you know, not sure what's next type of thing. And that's very difficult to always be ready. Yeah. Do you find, so to kind of flip that on its head, because when we talked about, I guess we'll, we'll use the word nimble for a professional sport, because you have to be, you have to make decisions fast. Have you, in, in all your time there, did you see scenarios where that may have backfired? Like somebody's shooting from the hip because they have to act now. And then in hindsight, oh shit, maybe we made the wrong decision. In terms of like playing people when, when they're injured or I something like that? From injury or, you know, make, I don't know all the different decisions that are made at like a GM level, but I would imagine that having to move that quickly, because really what I'm getting at is as slow as the military's processes are, I think there's some comfort i hesitate to say but there's some comfort in that because you know that there's time for things to flesh out yeah i think i think you're i think what i'm hearing you say is being more like i feel like in the army there's more time to think through it level-headedly right like i've got some time to think about this i'm you know i'm briefing a one-year plan i know that i have to hit these milestones along the path i'm going to get more information between now and then you know and you can kind of maybe anticipate those problems more as opposed to, I think where you're headed is like, Hey, we have a decision to make. Somebody got hurt last night. How do we get a player here for tomorrow? Or do we, or do we 
play our second string player or, you know, our backup player or whatever. And, uh, and we have to be moving. Like sometimes, you know, just making a decision is the best one in those moments, right? Where you just have to go, you just have to keep going and playing whatever cards you got in front of you, because that's what you got. Right. So I think decisions are made sometimes in, in those environments. And I think it's just part of maybe keeping that engine moving too. Mm-hmm. As it feels a little bit ironic that like, kind of the heart of tactical human performance is preparing people to like act fast in unknown complicated scenarios. But we're describing the fact that like the staff element of like the environment we create while they prepare moves really slow. I think that's, yeah. there's definitely some really deep irony in that. Yep. Yeah. 100%. I've always found irony in this idea that every organization I've worked with has been a quote, people first organization but the first and this isn't to like bash the military but i think just sort of tongue-in-cheek like people first okay to me as a strength and conditioning coach that means i'm going to prioritize health fitness training etc and i've never really yeah i'll say i've never really seen that play out to the extent that if you know real world mission i understand but like range time pops up or medical appointment pops up or whatever first thing you're dropping is, is did you, to throw a question in there, Brendan, with sport, did you see that same thing or because performance is the ultimate goal, does the player's health and well-being kind of trump all? Not absolutely. No, that, that same scenario happens in, in pro sport, uh, players in a slump, say he's an infielder really struggling defensively. Like it's not unlikely that you've got a training session planned. Uh, athlete comes in the weight room, starts the activation program, coach comes in, Hey, we got to work on ground balls. Let's go. Right. Pulls him completely out of the session. That totally happens. That gets in the way of planning, right? Like then you're like, well, this player hasn't lifted for uh, three days, right? Anything more than three days rest between now you're talking about soreness, starting to lose strength, losing performance, et cetera. It just keeps going. So that absolutely happens. Does the player, this is more like curiosity, but does the player have much say in their destiny, so to speak? Like, are they allowed to say, no, I'm hitting this lift? More now than ever. Because uh, when I first started, it wasn't, player didn't have very much voice. Now I think the player has most all of the voice. So I see, I see a lot of pro athletes pursuing like external strength and conditioning, like a coach they like or a program they like that's entirely separate from the team. How do those decisions get made and how does that impact what you guys try and do within the actual team's program? Yeah, it totally happens. Uh, I would say that more likely in the off season than in season, that has to do with proximity. The fact that uh, those personnel are not allowed in the clubhouse, it's a it's MLB mandate. Um, however, if, if those outside, I'm just using the word outside, um, folks want to train those athletes, they're going to have to find another location to do that so totally not uh um allowed in the clubhouse now i will say i talked about relationships your relationships with those players people really matter because again it's about having them at the center of this whole thing so it's it comes down to can you work with them and find the common goal which is the athlete and figure out how you work together to to help him or her get what they're trying to get after right so um this this kind of started with the off-season uh in the offseason, players would go pursue their own uh, trainers, you know, or whatever. And and early on, I think that the the approach was to resist that and 
And I think that people figured out that wasn't the right approach for a couple of reasons. And so I'm um, really, it's, it's collaborating with, with all folks, with the athlete in the middle. And it's not just, you know, other strength coaches or trainers or whatever it's nutritionists and keeps going. Right. I think of uh, Tom Brady. I don't remember the trainer he had, but there was all that drama about like that guy was going to, like he was in new England's building and all this stuff. And I just remember bands like banded resistance stuff and anti-inflammatories for some reason is all that I <laughs> No inflammation and all bands was the thing and that was what got tom brady through (laughs) yeah well i talked to i talked to a couple people about this week just the the literal concept of buy-in not like the idea of buy-in like actually buying into things and it's it's a challenge because any of these programs where like the organization provides strength and conditioning so few of those programs can match like the energy and the culture of private facilities but that's because in a private facility, everybody's paying to be there. They chose exactly. to be there. And you just, it's, it's all but impossible to achieve that a similar environment like that in an organizational facility. And I think that's what we're all kind of striving for, but I don't think there's a, a clear way to do that. I think that's one of the more underappreciated uh, concepts in, in professional sports. The fact that if I pay you, Alex, for something, I'm virtually with absolute uh, certainty, I'm going to take advantage of that because I'm, I'm providing money to you for a service. I'm going to make sure and get that service, right? On the other side, when clubs, for example, provide services for players like strength and conditioning, it comes down to your ability to, I guess, sell your product or figure out how what you have helps that person get what they want. And that's different. That's an optional service. Um, and I think, uh, I think compliance or how people follow you is going to be the biggest uh, one of the biggest factors there. We talk that a lot in our team because the army markets, a lot of things as free. If you're a soldier, like you show up to your first assignment and you're going to go to post in processing and they're going to tell you a million different free things you have access to. You have access to free financial counseling. You have access to free personal trainers. You have access to free nutrition counseling to free, whatever. Like every building on the main area of post is a different free service you could go take advantage <laughs> of right now. And then nobody uses them. And like many people aren't prepared to absorb that huge list of resources on day one and then never hear about it again. Man, I, I did eight years of active duty. and didn't really know what half of those resources were. And a lot of them are things we're kind of duplicating to a certain degree now with like embedded assets in the units and hopefully that makes it a little better because you can like run around their unit area and tell them who you are and what you offer. But I think part of it is just, we have to stop marketing these as free things because free things aren't valuable. We have to market them as really expensive things that taxpayers are giving service members that you should probably take advantage of. Yep. Well, that's, so I always have had that, that conversation with guys with, with tactical athletes because, and we talked about this in the episode we had with Nate of like, again, Brendan, correct me if I'm wrong here, but baseball, and I would imagine all sports, like they know that they're athletes and they understand what goes into being an athlete. And by the time they get to that level, they recognize the investment that needs to be made, I would think, to stay at that level and perform, et cetera, et cetera. With Alex, to your point, with the military and everything essentially being free and there's a lot less of an investment on like the personal level, I have always had to have conversations with guys to be like, listen, you are an athlete, 
you're equal to, you know, professional sport. It's not the same because, you know, you're not getting paid millions of dollars, what have you. But did you, Brendan, find yourself having to have that discussion at all with guys or did they just intrinsically get it by virtue of their job? So I, I think I think the extent to which they understand that different differs, right? I think that there's probably a a standard level that hey, I have to take care of myself, and that includes making sure that I do the best I can to get sleep and drink water and kind of the low lying fruit. Now, how far athletes go past that differs, right? Like how strict are you on your meal timing? Uh, how you know do you use wearables? Do you use Aura Ring? Do you use Whoop Band? And how much do you change your behavior based on that data? Um, you know, do you have some stress management techniques that you go through before you go to bed or before you perform or whatever? So those as examples to how much those are selected, I think is, is highly individual, but I would say that, you know, I would say there's a, a relationship between high, really high performers and, and their one understanding of those. And then two, which ones help them? Well, you guys both probably have more exposure to professional athletes than I do, but it doesn't seem like the nutrition stuff is consistently something that professional athletes take seriously. I don't know. I don't know about the other domains, but. I mean, I worked with, I worked with college. Well, it was in the UK, so we'll call it university and with rugby. So nutrition was not necessarily, like you said, the most uh, sought after performance enhancer. I don't know if baseball is similar. <laughs> it's, it, it has improved a lot. Uh, I think the COVID year really helped improve that space because clubs couldn't provide food buffet style. So you couldn't just lay out a whole bunch of food. So, you know, during that year, chefs were preparing food based on app usage for example so you you know send out uh in an app what's the menu for for the night or whatever and you can naturally constrain that by not providing foods outside of what your dietitian considers healthy right so if you provide four meal options uh and of those four ones a, a plant-based option you know you have a chicken a fish and a beef or whatever um and your portion sizes seem appropriate and to you know based on uh you know, body types or however you're coordinating that from a nutrition standpoint. Um, so those were definitely available. And I think that those are still active uh, in, in baseball for sure right now. So it's, it's improved a lot. Um, and that just has to do with, you know, some naturally occurring things around us. It must be nice to just like walk into the clubhouse and have just like delicious food sitting out. time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but it's still it's still work. There's still so much other stuff that's going around, right? Like around you all the time. And you, you I don't think you take it for granted. I, I didn't take it for granted. Um, I would just say you just don't notice it as much as maybe I, I did my first year in the major leagues, right? And it's not that I, it's it's not that you stop appreciating it. It's just that your focus just changes. What you're focused on changes. Some of that choice architecture stuff and the psychology of those yeah. decisions is super interesting. I know yeah. my whole time active duty, I would have told you that defect breakfast is great, but don't go to any of the other meals because they're terrible. And now I travel around the army and eat most of my lunches at defects. And they're honestly pretty decent. They're like, and if you like factor in what they cost, they're incredible. Yep. So I don't know what it was about like the culture surrounding it when I was in, but I'm happy with defect food. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Brendan, across 20 years of working in that space, what did you see some pretty key shifts in like performance culture, the way guys were approaching things? Like, were there some pretty key things that stand out? 
There really are. I mean, uh, when I was uh, 21 or 22, just getting into professional sport as a strength coach, we were still trying to just make, just trying to get athletes or players to lift weights, right? Because the coaches at that time still had this legacy mindset that, you know, lifting weights in baseball is just a bad thing, right? And we wouldn't want to ever do that. The only thing you're allowed to do is just run and run hard, right? All the time at, at high volumes. And, um, as opposed to kind of where, where it's at now, where, you know, you've got athletes that are focused on the key pillars of their performance and, and they, they train early, they train before the game. They don't wait till after the game anymore. Um, and they use that as a priming piece. Um, so it is, it has changed so much. And then obviously like technology, which, uh, started, you know, being automated and coming in as really clean data and probably 2017, 2018, where actually you could rely on the data um, and then, you know, use that to help uh, inform athletes of what was going on and then build plans from there. So, you know, I've seen it shift a ton and, um, and now it's moving towards biomechanics, uh, you know, with motion capture and um, in-game, you know, uh, you know, ball flight analytics and, and different things you all see on TV. These are, I'm asking very leading questions because I think we can already see a lot of the similarities between I mean, right now the, the military is in the same space. Like people are, it's getting better, but there's a resistance to training. A lot of, you know, you should run yep. with technology specifically as that has become more and more accessible. And I would imagine with the amount of money that we're talking about here in professional sport, do you think that that has reached a level to where it has replaced the athlete coach relationship? Or do you see it as more of a supplement or do you see it as just sort of at the end of the day, a nice to have versus a need to have? Probably a little of all that. I, I mean, it, it's difficult, right? Because I, I love data. I love information. I've had two positions that were data-driven positions in the performance space. Um, at the same time, I also think that it can be in the way a little bit. And I think if you're spending most of your time looking at, uh, you know, throwing CSVs into our, into our studio and running code on them, like, you're missing a huge portion of your job and that's building relationships with people to help them understand what you know, right? And um, I think there's also the assumption that people want the data. Like you still have a choice whether you want the data or not. You know, some people don't wanna be informed of that data because they don't feel like that helps them. In fact, some athletes think that that really hurts them. Some people have a tough time wearing Aura Ring or using Whoop because they're like, dude, like you're telling me I'm a 75% recovered at the same time, like, I feel like a nine or a 10 out of 10 right now. Like what's going on here. That's one of the most common pieces of feedback you get with those tools. Um, so, I mean, data is a big piece. I think you need to, you know, I think it's, you need to be aware of that and then sort of help uh, use that data to help connect dots along your path. Nate Palin wrote a really good article about it a few weeks ago. Uh, we, we tend to treat service members like guinea pigs a little bit when it comes to data. Like if you, if you like realize how many people are coming at these soldiers with different surveys and different things they're supposed to go on and fill out and like all the things they have to engage with online to like capture all the data. I think there's a, a lack of communication with them about how that data is going to be used to help them. And sometimes there is no plan for how that data is going to be used to help them. It's just capturing data for the sake of capturing data. And that's something I think we could really, really improve on is like throttling that down to a manageable amount and then making it clear how it's getting used to make the situation better for the individual. Yep. Yep. Well, I, I agree. 
That's, I mean, now having done this twice with new programs in tactical spaces, like if, if embedded performance people are the band-aid, data for embedded performance people is like the cast. Because people just assume like, okay, we're going to collect all this stuff and it's going to solve all of our problems. But I think the, the idea would be that the, the technology and the data should really just exist to plug the holes in the human element of things. And I think, you know, Brendan, you just kind of touched on it with 20 years of this before any of that was even available. You had to take the time to solve those problems without access to all the numbers, all the data, what have you. And I think maybe this is just a bias because I've worked with the military for so long. There's this like relentless pursuit of, of tech because tech is what drives tanks and jets and battleships and guns and all this sort of thing. And let's drill human beings down to the same level of analytics that we can for like, you know, a vehicle and just completely overlook the human elements, all of that, because like you said, Alex, it's basically guinea pigs that we're dealing with and, and why aren't they compliant with this beautiful survey that we just put together? It's interesting to see that happen now all over again. To get cheesy for a second. Um, this is certainly not why I joined the army, but it was one of the things that convinced me that it was a good decision. Um, it was some general that was talking about it a while back, but they explained the foundational difference between the services is that the air force acquires airframes and then mans them. It measures its end strength in number of airframes. The Navy acquires ships and then mans them. It, it measures its end strength in the number of ships or carrier battle groups that it has. The army recruits humans and then equips them and it measures its end strength in the number of people it has. And I think there is a fundamental difference there and we could do a better job of focusing on that. We, we lose sight of it a lot and it depends on the unit, right? If you're in an armor unit, people are going to be a lot more interested in how many of the tanks work because that like, you're just not an armored unit without that. But there is something to the fact that it's the people centric of the military services. I think that's valuable. And that's when Alex committed. That's when he, I could see you now. <laughs> super pumped <laughs> Brendan do you so that actually brings up a question in my mind would you say that professional sports organizations are are people first or performance first at the expense of people well that depends on the leader of that organization what's important to them is really the right answer to that I think you have to have both in mind, but I think much like doing any work at the end of the day, performance is going to be measured objectively. And that includes hurting feelings of human beings sometimes. And that's just unfortunate. That's just part of, you know, what you sign up for when you do work in a premier space and, or even a, a fairly common space. Um, so I, I think, I think, I think a lot of clubs want to talk about being people first. Um, I'm not convinced that, that they all are. I was, I kind of think to myself that you're, you're allowed to say, or people are a lot more willing to say that they're people first after they've spent a lot of time being performance first and they achieve results and then they can turn around with the warm and fuzzy. Interesting. That's just, yep. that comes to mind. I've seen that play out several times. <laughs> well, and, and throwing, throwing a, a party on Friday afternoon and providing lunch doesn't mean you're people first, right? Like, morale. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You know what I'm saying? Like, Hey, just cause we grab coffee, it doesn't mean we're all people first, right? Like you actually have to like show people without, you know, using your words, you actually have to show them what that looks like. 
Listen, don't tell me your favorite class in school was not the one when the teacher rolled in the TV every Friday. because he... <laughs> Yeah, right. Before Christmas or something. Yeah, that's where you want it to be. I don't care what anyone says. That's the class. You yep. want. That is the class you want. I'm rethinking human performance programs entirely, and they're now in my head centered on TVs on carts and pizza lunches. <laughs> <laughs> foundational days, days off. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I tell people, I tell people you can't buy this stuff, but it kind of turns out you totally can. It's <laughs> buy it in the form of pizza, but depends on the line of funding. Yeah, exactly. All right, so to to get close to putting a bow on this, like ultimate questions here: What do you miss most about baseball or a baseball professional sport? That whole space. Well, I think one thing that's exciting about that space is when you're traveling all the time it's just exciting because you're in new places frequently right and you get to experience other cities i've been to all 30 major league stadiums you know traveled around the world doing anthropometric assessments on players for the mlb draft and and that's exciting right going to the dominican republic and driving around the island and, and, and assessing athletes is very exciting it's very dangerous but very exciting um so I would say that's that's one difference, you know, with uh, with our positions now. Um, you know, I've done uh, I've gone TDY once or twice, so much less frequency of travel. Um, although that's exciting too, because I'm now going to places that I've never been um, uh, before either. So that's uh, that's kind of how I think about that. I'm sure your wife and kids appreciate the, uh, <laughs> the travel. Yeah, de- definitely, and and I've never played a bigger part in in uh in being a dad and a husband than i am right now nice so then the flip side of that question then and i know that you've you've only been with the army for a short period of time so far but when you take it all in and think about where this program specifically but more broadly just tactical human performance where that's headed what is it about that that you think most excites you that you may not have had in professional sport yeah i think the level of training that uh that the key leaders have is uh unique to this space and the private space. I haven't seen it there. Um, I kind of described my first 15 months as an advanced degree in communication, leadership, and strategy, because I guys, and I'm not kidding, like some of the, the, the brigade leadership that I'm around right now, like I just, you know, I'm like, wow, you guys are really, really good at, at a variety of, of, uh, of tasks and factors and leadership. And I watch them lead meetings and it's completely different than what a civilian meeting looks like where civilian meetings like, Hey, we're all the way over here. And then we're shifting and we're over here. I mean, it's, you know, you're kind of just talking about rabbit holes as strength coaches. We're like all the way around and kind of just moving, but not getting anywhere. And I think that the army is the complete opposite. At least my experience so far in, in leadership meetings is the complete opposite where there's clear direction and we're here for a clear reason. Um, and, uh, and again, the, the leadership is, has been eye opening for me personally. Nice. Alex, have we left any stones unturned? I think I was, I was a little bit interested in that response because right before that you were talking about like time with family and things like that. And I think there is something there that we can, that we kind of owe the industry to communicate quality of life advantages. Cause I think like collegiate and pro sport when it comes to like support staff and maybe even athletes, I don't know, uh, is a little bit of like a meat grinder in terms of you're going to give them a tremendous number of hours of your day and a tremendous numbers of days of your week with very little job stability and things like that. And I think there is a story to tell here in terms of like the quality of life available as we bring in 
like more and more awesome professionals to help this whole tactical human performance thing. There's some, there's some huge personal advantages too. Yep. There really is. All right. We'll call it there. Brendan, thank you very much. We're going to have you back. <laughs> I appreciate it guys. I always, uh, always enjoy chat with you, Drew. I see you all the time, Alex, see you probably once a quarter or whatever, but always enjoy, uh, always enjoy catching up with you guys. Thank you. Thank you.